Thank you so much for being here, and, and thank Jerry. I, I never even told you when I left. I said, Jerry's going to take the class the next two weeks. So hopefully you guys figured that out. <laughs> hopefully that worked, worked out. So I am really apologize for not making mention of that at all. So um, Jerry is a phenomenal teacher, and I'm glad that he, that he came. So what did he talk about? <laughs> science and faith. Science and faith. Awesome. Physics, science, and faith. That's good. Yeah, he's, he's one logical, extremely logical person. So I, I just uh, really appreciate him and his teaching. So I'm glad that he, he filled in. So we're still under the doctrine of God and trying to understand God. Um, and right now we're under um, his work. And we're going to talk about the doctrine of God in regards to the work um, at redemption. And uh, I'm going to work a lot with um, R.C. Sproul. I love R.C. Sproul, who has passed away now. But um, he uh, wrote a book called The Holiness of God, and a phenomenal book. So um, if you've ever read that book, you might get some of the things that I'm going to talk about right now um, in regards to that book, because I'm going to be pulling a lot, a lot of information from it. But uh, one of the things that um, he said uh, in that book is that he stood uh, up and, and he gave a uh, um, actually, I think he was telling a story about another professor. The professor, you know, asked the class, because um, what we're going to do is we're going to have two big questions and then we're going to talk about it. But he asked the class, he said, who killed Jesus? And um, the class sat there and they pondered and said, you know, who killed Jesus? And they started thinking about it. And then you know what the words they said? One of the guys raised their hand and says, you know, actually it's the soldiers that ended up killing him. They're the ones that stuck the nails into his hands and they're the ones that put him on the cross and they're the reason um, they're, they're the ones that ended up killing them. And the professor said, no, the, the soldiers aren't the ones that killed Jesus. And then people had a thought, and I was like, no, no, it wasn't the soldiers, it was Pilate. And the reason why Pilate's the one that killed them because there's, you know, they would have never even gotten to the soldiers if Pilate did not sentence him to death. So Pilate is the one who killed Jesus. The professor shook his head again and said, you know, Pilate did not kill Jesus. And then somebody else raised their hand and said, you know what, it was the Jews. The Jews are the one who did it because if the Jews did not bring Jesus to Pilate, then Pilate would never even have the opportunity to crucify him or let him live. It was the Jews that killed Jesus. They're the ones that conspired to make it happen. And the professor said, no, it wasn't the Jews. Another person raised their hand and said, well, it's Judas because they would, the Jews would have never found him unless Judas was the one that turned him in. And after Judas turned them in, the Jews found them, and they're the ones that killed Jesus. And, oh, it wasn't Judas. And one of the smarter guys in the class said, you know, it wasn't any of those. You know who killed Jesus? It was the sinners. It was the sinners that put Jesus on the cross. The professor said, the sinners did not kill Jesus. And then everybody was stumped, and they asked, well, then who killed him? And the professor said it was his father who ended up killing him. I just want to look at passage in Isaiah of where they get that information. And I just want to read it as we're talking about the cross of Christ because we're trying to figure out God's, God's, God the Father's perspective of this death of Jesus, of this redemption that took place through the blood of Christ. Isaiah 53, two through 10 says this. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, 
nothing in Christ's appearance that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, a sheep before the shears in silent so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. So when you look at this entire passage, you see very strong words that were handed down to Jesus. You see despised, rejected, wounded, bruised, oppressed, judged, afflicted, stricken, smitten, led to the lamb of the slaughter, cut off from the land of the living, assigned a grave to the wicked, crushed, punished, pierced, suffered, and at the very bottom you said, it is God's will that this take place. John 18, 11 says, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink up the cup that the Father has now given me? And then Matthew 16, 23, Jesus turned again to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have the mind of the things of God, but to the things of man. So if God did not will, it would not happen. It was God's will for it to, to take place. Now we look at the concept and say, well, no, 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 no. Sinners are the ones that killed Jesus. It was not the Father. Yes, the Father might have willed it, but the sinners are the ones that killed Jesus. The sinners kill God? Are you crazy? Absolutely not. What did sinners do? Sinners just killed themselves. They just killed themselves. And then the Father intervenes in the process. Therefore, it is my will to crush Jesus. But this is going to lead to another question. And what the other question is, is number two, was the cross really necessary? I mean, did Jesus really have to die? Did he have to get mocked? Did he have to get beaten? Did he have to get torn in two? I mean, think about God for a second. God could have done anything to save souls. Why didn't he say, I want to save souls, I'm going to snap my thumb. And as I, I snap my thumb, then souls will be saved. Why do all the death? Why do the cross? Why kill his son? What has taken place? Was it necessary? Matthew 26, 39 says it was necessary. And he went out. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me Yet not as I will, but your will, which God is saying, this is necessary that you go to what? 
a cross. He says it in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus. And he said to them, a foolish man, a slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. Was it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and not enter into his glory? Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter his glory? He's saying it is absolutely necessary, but this is gonna give us a whole bunch of questions. Number one, why did God do it? And then number two, why was it necessary to go through all of that? That's what we're gonna talk about. Yes, God is the one that did it, and yes, it was necessary. So let's explain why it's necessary. Number three, God sent his son to die because he loved his holy name and the sinner who then has defiled it. We talked a couple weeks about God's first love. Remember what God's first love is? God's first love is rooted into the valley, the, the, is rooted into the concept of his holy name, is rooted into his holy name. We're not Christ's first love. Christ's first love is founded on his holy name. R.C. Sproul uses a, um, a passage in 2 Samuel that talks about Uzziah, and, um, or Uzzah, I'm sorry, Uzzah. And uh, Uzzah was, a, was a, a Levite, meaning that he was a, a, a priest. And uh, they, David just now conquered, um, conquered the kingdom and stole the ark. And as he stole the ark and grabbed the ark for himself, they were transporting the ark to the location where they were going to worship. God and build a home for God. And as they stole the ark, they were transporting it um, um, with the Levites next to the ark. And as they were transporting this ark, everything was going well. And the reason why everything was going well is because they had people alongside the ark that walk alongside of it to make sure that it was completely taken care of. Remember what the ark is? The ark is representation of the holy of holies. It's the the holy, pure, pure, completely pure God's Shekinah glory rests on the ark. Therefore, it's been given strict orders to make sure nobody touches it. When the process of this ark being carried, the oxen started to stumble, and when the oxen started to stumble, what happened? Well, Uzzah, who was standing next to the ark, saw that the oxen stumbled and noticed that the ark started to tilt, and that the ark of the covenant was going to hit the ground. So what did Uzzah do? He reached out to make sure what? That the ark did not hit the ground, because it would have been completely defilement in his eyes that if the ark hit the ground and fell into the dirt, then they did something completely wrong. So he prevented the ark from hitting the ground and he touched the ark to make sure that it was saved. But when he touched the ark, what happened? He was struck dead right in the spot, instantly killed. Now you think about from a human's perspective, it's like, come on God, give the guy a break. He's trying to protect your ark from falling into the dirt. What kind of disgrace would that be? He's trying to protect the ark, therefore he's trying to help you out, God, and the process of you, him helping you out, he was struck dead. So from a human perspective, and David's perspective, because David was extremely mad at God for doing this, he said, it's wrong, God, for you to, to, to do something like that. But look at it from a God's perspective. From God's perspective, he has this holy object that's carrying his holy name, completely pure, his first love, his holy name, and all of a sudden it starts to tilt, and, and all of a sudden the man who dishonors his holy name reaches out from God's perspective. Don't you defile it 
Don't you touch my holy name. And if you do touch my holy name with my orders, you will be struck dead. See, where Uzzah went wrong, according to R.C. Sproul, is that he assumed that his hands were more clean than the dirt on the ground. He assumed that his hands were more clean than the dirt of the ground. Well, from God's perspective, dirt does what dirt is designed to do. I mean, when it gets wet, what does it do? It turns into mud. When it freezes wet, it, it gets hard. And all of a sudden, when it dries out, it turns into dust. Dirt does absolutely everything what God designed it to do, and Uzzah's hands do what? They do not do what God designed them to do because there's sin that's inside of them. Therefore, the greatest mistake that Uzzah had was he thought that his hands were more clean than the dirt on the ground. It would have been more beautiful, not beautiful, but more better for the ark to fall in the dirt than it was for a sinful individual to touch that ark. See what happens when you look at God is God's holy name will not be defiled. God's holy name will not be defiled. It will not be touched by sin. Leviticus 10.3 says this, Among those who approach me, I will show myself as holy in the sight of all people. I specifically will be honored. It is rooted in, the fir- in his first love that his holy name would absolutely exist. And therefore, since it is rooted that his holy name exists, anybody that defies his holy name is going to do what? They should die. They should be killed. Not only for a moment, but they should be killed for an absolute eternity because that's God's first love, is his holy name. But there's a problem. And the problem is that God loves sinners, (laughs) if you think about that. The problem is that God loves sinners because if he had his holy name and the sinner defiled his holy name, everything's easy. You just get rid of the sinners. You You just let them die. You just let them perish. You let them pay for their own sin for eternity. It's exactly what he did with all the angels. The angels that left heaven, he says, oh, you know, the the love's not there. The love's not connected there. Therefore, you can just have what you want and go. And all of a sudden, they're gone. But the problem is that God loves the person that defiled his holy name. So if God loves the person that defiled his holy name, he cannot embrace the person that defiles his holy name. Why? Because he would destroy the concept of his holy name. So something radical had to happen. Something huge had to happen where God is going to respect and honor his holy name and in the process save the sinner. And when you look at that, what radical thing had to happen? The radical thing that God chose to happen was to send his son. And when you look at the concept of of Jesus coming to earth, what do you see that is on the cross? You see the blood. You see the spitting. You see the half naked. You see the crown of thorns. You see a payment that is being done for the price of sin. But inside that cross, you know what else you see? You see, my holy name will not be defiled, and all my wrath who dishonors it will be then put on what? Me, my son. So the cross is what? Proclaiming God's holy name and then proclaiming something else. What's it proclaiming? The love to the sinner who defiles his holy name. See, when God is building the kingdom, he's not building it on the concept 
of the sinner. He's building on the concept of his holy name, and then he saves the sinner. If God would have just snapped his thumb and says, I'm just going to save you without the cross, do you know what he would be saying? He'd be saying, my holy name is not that big of a deal, and yes, you defiled it, but I don't really care. I'm just going to embrace you and snap his thumb. See, that's not the way God planned it. That's not the way God worked. God said, I want to reveal to this world what my holy name looks like, and I want to reveal to this world my love for the sinner who actually defiles it. Therefore, those who believe on my name will then be saved. Matthew 27, 45 through 46, we see the complete penalty of sin taking place. And what is a complete penalty of sin taking place? Jesus being completely rejected by God because all the sin was on his shoulders. And what happens is all the way through the pain and all the way through the gruesomeness that took place at the cross, Jesus never does yell out until one thing happens. God turns his head, and as soon as God turns his head, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's getting a taste of hell because all the sin is specifically on his shoulders. He's displaying that I will not look at sin. There will be a payment, and it has to be a perfect payment, and God is the one that will make that payment so the crazy little sinner that is out there can live with me for eternity. It was God's plan to get this done. But you know, when you look at God's plan, it's all about God specifically doing all the work. He's doing all the work in the process of this salvation. I just want to skip over to John 3.16. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know, a lot of our concepts think, you know, the reason why Jesus died is because he's trying to save us from God. And uh, since he's trying to save us from God's wrath, he's going to go and he's going to take all the pain and do all the brutalness because Jesus is the one that loves us. And Jesus is the one that cares about us. But look at that verse closely because we read it fast. It says, for God, for the Father loved the world. You see, we don't know what love is until we see what God has done. God in the Old Testament, in fact, God in the Old Testament gets a, it gets a bad name. God in the Old Testament should never get a bad name. You see more grace and mercy even in the Old Testament than you do see in the, the New Testament. The Old Testament's full of grace. And why is it full of grace? It's because God is patient. He loves us, therefore he's patient. He loves us, therefore he's kind. He loves us, therefore he's working with us. We cannot look at God the Father and say, oh yeah, God the Father doesn't like us. Thank you that Jesus came because since Jesus came, we can now live. No, God is the one that willed it all for it to happen because he has two loves, a love for his holy name and a love for the person that defiles it. Therefore, God so loved the world that he did what? Gave. And even when you start thinking about the concept of death, you know, I think God even paid just as strong as prices as Jesus paid. What do I mean by that? I mean, if I had to plan this and I had to orchestrate this um, event of salvation and it was on my shoulders and the only way I could do it was to send my daughter, one of my daughters, I mean, I, I wouldn't orchestrate it that way. I'd say, no, 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 let me just send myself. You see, what's taking place is there's a heavy heart of God as he's sending his child 
to the cross. Therefore, when we embrace Jesus, the reason why we're embracing Jesus is because we are embracing God the Father. As it says, nobody comes to God unless you go through Jesus, but the goal is to do what? Is to specifically get to God. Therefore, God should not have an ugly name. And unfortunately, even the church nowadays, there's kind of even a movement that's going on, is that don't even pay attention to the God of the Old Testament. Because if you start paying attention to the God of the Old Testament, you'll hate God because he's, he's ugly. He's, he's, he's wicked. He's mean. He's got a lot of wrath. Absolutely not. See, they're, the, they're in this together. In fact, you hear the words Jesus saying, nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down. Do you see the harmony between the Father and the Son as they're moving to the salvation of men who defiled, mankind who defiled, God's holy name, they're both on track with making sure that those loves are protected. Number four, God sent his son to die to ultimately do away with sin. Now there's, a, there's an interesting war that is going on out there that we don't have all the information on the planet, just to let you know. In fact, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, you know, the hidden things are for the Lord, but the things revealed are in his word. What that means, it means there's some mystery, there's some secret things, there's some things that they have not been disclosed yet. And what are, are those secret things? Well, they're secret things, we just, we just do not know. But there's Satan, and then there's God, and then there's us that are in between. And there's this sin dynamic that is taking place. Well, the cross does what? Wipes this sin word out for absolutely good. In other words, it's not going to take place anymore for the rest of eternity. Hebrews 9, 26 says, otherwise, we, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Something absolutely radical happened, and it would be that cross to do what? Sin is now paid for forever. You will not see it you will not see it come up again. Again, it was God's plan, and that plan was designed with the cross. Number five, God sent his son to die to reveal the character of the father. What is the character um, of the father? Well, if you look at Jesus, you'll be able to see the exact character of the father. In fact, if you want to know what God looks like, how God responds, how God behaves, um, uh, how, how God observes. You want to know everything about God, all you have to do is understand Jesus. And when you understand Jesus, who's written in the human language, because we understand human language, we will start to know everything about God. Hebrews 1 says, and he is the radiance of his glory, God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. He had made purifications of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And all of a sudden, what do you see? God's will, which is what? The cross. This is exactly what God looks like when you look at the cross. Exactly what God looks like. And what is it proclaiming? Again, the two things. His love for his holy name and his love for the sinner that defiles it. And then 1 John says, you don't even know what love is until you what? Have seen what God has done. God is the one that is bringing this drive of love. Yes, Jesus is with it, but bringing this drive of love to people. 
Here's what God looks like, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now are these concepts that are given in the Old Testament? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are these very consistent with everything that's happening in the Old Testament? And the answer is absolutely it is. I mean, just read the darkest book in the entire Old Testament. What's the darkest book in the Old Testament? The book of Judges. <laughs> the book of Judges is consumed through, through three years, and it is one dark time. But through the dark times, what do you see? You see life pop up every once in a while because there's a cycle that has taken place. God says, turn to me and you'll be saved. And what do people do? They turn away from God. And in the process of turning away from God, what takes place? Destruction, natural destruction even takes place as they turn away from God. But God, who is rich in mercy, brings them conviction. And when they receive conviction, they then turn to God. He sends them a savior. That's what the judges are. He sends judges to save them. Say, no, turn to me, because when you're connected with me, what's gonna happen? Life will take place. Prosperity will take place. Love will take place. Strength will take place. That's what the Old Testament is about. But no, we still, they still, they keep on rejecting God. Keep on rejecting God. Keep on rejecting God. That's what the whole Old Testament is. Everybody consistently rejecting God and God still doing what? Giving grace, giving grace, giving grace, giving grace. And then all of a sudden Jesus shows up and then the cross takes place. He's saying, I was this patient all the way through and this is why is this patient is because I wanted to send you a savior who is now Jesus Christ who will save you. All of these fruits of the spirit is God portrayed completely and entirely in the Old Testament. I read through the... Um, um, I read two chapters in the book of Psalms every day, and, and I read it really, really slow, and I mark it up, you know, just looking at all the words, and I cannot believe how many times it says the word salvation in the book of Psalms. Save us, O God. Have mercy on us, O God. Purify us, O God. God, please redeem us. And, and what is God doing? He is doing it in the process, and then Jesus comes to do it in completion. God is complete love. God the Father is complete love. And even when you look at these words, well, he's complete love, but he's not patient. What do you mean he's not patient? What's his wrath doing? His wrath is just is building. In other words, I'm just, I'm just pulling it back. I'm having mercy on people. Mercy, please come to the saving knowledge of who I am. And my wrath is even being pulled back, completely patient. And the reason why we still exist in 2021 is for one reason, the patience of God, because not everybody who he has chosen is in his fold. And after every single year passes, more and more people are in his fold. And you say, well, God, everything's a mess. Everything is destructive. Everything is, 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 is chaotic, and sin is just controlling this world. Well, God's saying, don't worry. I'm patient. You be patient as well, because salvation will come to my people. And as all this destruction has taken place, I will, yes, hold the anger back and consistently still be patient in the process. Therefore, look at my son and be saved. That's God's attitude. That's God the Father's attitude. Number five, God sent his son to die to reveal the character of the Father. I already read that one. God sent his son to die to destroy the works 
of the devil. When Adam and Eve sinned, Satan declared, I win. Why? Because we just chose a master, and it was not God. Human beings just chose a master, and it was not God. The temptation was there with Satan, and we said, Satan over here and God over here. And Satan's temptation says you can be like God and understand good from evil. All these temptations like, oh my goodness, I can actually take a step above God. And what happens? We embrace a new king. We embrace a new Lord, which is what? Which is which is Satan. We respond specifically to him. And, and God could have just wiped us out. He could have just said, I'm just going to end it. You defiled my holy name. You wiped out my holy name. You chose your own savior. The demons chose their own savior, and I just cast them away. You chose your own savior. I'm just going to cast you his way as well. But when after they sinned, God came and he started explaining their judgment. And when he started explaining your judgment, you hear the words that, you know, in childbirth, um, you will have pain. And you know the thorns and the thistles. And you hear all the judgment from the sin that has taken place. But then you hear this other statement that is in that, the lines of judgment. And look at the statement in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. God walks into this concept of judgment when it comes to mankind. And do you know what he says to Satan? He says, you see that woman who you think that is yours? Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put a seed that is inside of her. I'm going to put a seed. I'm going to put an egg that's inside of this woman. You think you own this woman? You don't own this woman. I'm actually going to use this woman to literally destroy you once and for all. It is going to be done. The woman you think that you have is a, is a person that is ended up killing you because of the seed that I'm going to put inside of her. What's he talking about, a seed that's put inside of her? He's going to put himself inside of her. What I mean is Jesus is going to come to earth, born of a virgin. I'm going to take this woman, and I'm going to destroy you. think that you have her, you don't have her. I will put a seed inside of her, and he will be born. And as he walks on this planet, you know what you're going to do? Is you're going to bruise him. But in the process of bruising him, he is going to crush you completely and entirely. He's talking about Jesus. So here he is handing out judgment, and as he's handing out judgment, he's talking about judgment is going to be placed on me for these people. And Satan doesn't understand the entire concept. It's obvious Satan doesn't understand the concept in regards to the verses that are even on your paper. So as Satan doesn't understand this concept, Martin Luther makes a statement to say, you know, wonder how Satan reacted to this concept. Because if you look at the verse that one day a seed will be put into a woman, how does Satan understand it? How does Satan respond to it? Martin Luther says that he's probably looking absolutely everywhere for the seed to be born, and then all of a sudden he's going to unleash when it takes place. That's exactly what the Old Testament happens. If you've ever noticed in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is, is, is taking place, and, and where is the, where is the, the demons? Where is the, where is the spiritual activity? You know, you don't see a lot of spiritual activity in the Old Testament. Um, but I tell you, I think that Satan's probably looking down, waiting for this seed. And as soon as that seed comes, what happens? An unleash of spiritual activity is going to take place. 
You don't see a lot of spiritual activity. Yes, you see Satan show up in Job, but you see a massive amount of spiritual activity. What? When the seed was born. <laughs> when the seed was born, you've got demons and you have everything just completely entirely taking place to do what? To annihilate the seed because Satan knows that this is a seed that is going to destroy, going to destroy him. See, this was God's plan. It was God's plan that I will cast judgment on myself so people will be saved, and in that process of being saved, Satan, you are going to be doomed. When he's casting judgment on people, on Adam and Eve, childbirth, thorns and thistles, the ultimate judgment he's casting is literally on Satan himself. 1 John 3, 8 says this, the Son of God appeared for the purpose to destroy what? The works of the devil. Next week we're gonna talk about the wisdom of God and we're gonna see how he literally destroys the works of the devil through a massive amount of wisdom that is just phenomenal. John 12, 31, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be finally end up casted out. Colossians 2, 15 says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them uh, through him. And then Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who has a power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear and death were subject to slavery all their lives. And then 1 Corinthians 2, 17 says, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God presented before the ages to our glory. That's a passage we're going to be working on next week. The wisdom which none of the rulers, that means none of Satan, none of the, 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 the demons, none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord. The cross was not only designed to exalt God's holy name and to save the sinners, was also designed to put an end to death and also in the process destroy Satan once and for all. It was all God's plan. It was all God's plan and it was, according to Matthew or Luke, necessary for it to take place. He couldn't just snap his thumb. He must have done all this for all that he wanted to accomplish in this world, in this planet, with Satan, with his demons, and also with us. God's plan is good, and it's centered around, again, love. Two loves. First love is what? Rooted in the value of his holy name. Second love is what? Rooted, uh, would, given to us. Rooted into the sinner who destroys his holy name, who he could not save unless something radical happened, and then that radical thing that happened was the cross.